You're listening to Level Up with Melissa Zalouf from Iron Source. So welcome back, everyone. I'm Melissa Zalouf, and you're listening to Level Up, the podcast for people who love making, growing, and of course, playing mobile games. Today, I'm here with Om Tandon, who is UX Director at UX Reviewer Games Consultancy. Om, thank you very much for being on the show today. Thanks a lot for inviting me, Melissa. Uh, it's a pleasure. Ha- out of interest, how am I pronouncing your name right? Oh, yes, Om. Om. Om is- it's, yeah. it's, it's quite calming. I, I suppose that's the intention. Um, so <laughs> so uh, let's talk a little bit about your background. Um, you actually have a degree uh, in economics um, from University of Calcutta, um, but you, there was a sort of like a section on behavioral economics in there, which I think we're going we're gonna to loop back around to. Before you switch to design, so yeah. take us through... Take us through what what brought about that shift, and then how did that take you to the world of games? Yeah, that's a very interesting question, Melissa. And I, I often get asked, you know, this question when people look at you know my uh, like uh, academic history. So for me, um, growing up, you know, I've always been very much interested in. I've been very curious about you know how things work, and also by that extension, how people's mind work because you know Never. brain is a fascinating object as well. So. Yeah, I started studying economics and part of it I started mathematics, statistics, but what I, what fascinated me most was behavioral economics because it's a branch of economics which deals with psychology of consumer behavior. So it's psychology mm-hmm. about how people make spending decisions, you know, rationally, irrationally, and there's lots about which differs from, you know, pure scientific studies. People don't always make rational decisions. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're dictated by questions, sometimes they're dictated by, you know, what's happening around them. So it was very fascinating for me. But once I finished my college, um, I, I sat for MBA exams in my country back in India. And yeah, the interesting thing is uh, I scored a very decent percentile, like uh, close to 80%, you know, all over the country. And I had admission to 10 to 12 top colleges in my country. That very day, my, my imagine my parents are, you know, ecstatic. Oh, you know, yeah, it's all worth the effort. <laughs> you got to go to Sun and I'm like, Wait a minute, <laughs> you know, this is not what I want to do because, you oh, know, three studying economics, it was very clear to me I had a creative streak. I, I didn't know mm-hmm. what exactly I wanted to express it, but I knew for sure, you know, I wanted to do something creative. And I have always enjoyed playing games, you know, admired concept art and all that cool stuff that we see, uh, comic books, games. So I said, I want to do something with games. And that's when, you know, I looked up for, I literally Googled game design, you know, game art uh, courses in India. There was nothing there. Mm-hmm. I'm talking yeah. back into. So I came mm-hmm. across advertising and graphics course and that's what I signed up for. Mm. Okay. And then how did you get into games? Yeah, Eventually. That, that, yeah the struggle did not end there because uh, once I joined, I realized, you know, there are no proper game design courses at that time. You know, imagine there's no mobile gaming, only PC games. In mm-hmm. India, really or three companies which did outsourcing. They didn't even create games and house. Yeah. So, through my uh, design course, I had a meta goal. I said, yeah, I, I'll work through this because I need to learn, you know, how design, uh, the basics of design and art, the foundation principles. But, uh, I worked on a portfolio which, uh, which is all about, you know, uh, game UI, game graphics, game art. I started out as a, out as a concept artist, but, uh, mm-hmm. With a bit of struggle, you know, I was able to find a job in one of the gaming companies. So, yeah, it was worth the effort. Okay. You knew where you wanted to get to. 
Um, yeah. And so, UX, you are, um, I, I think, self-described evangelist for good UX design in games. Um, so t tell us to sort of like high level, right? 411, what is uh, good UX in games and why? I mean, oh, why is it important? I think we probably all know why it's important, but give us, give us the pitch. Yeah, sure. So UX, in my understanding, first I want to clarify, you know, for majority of people, when they think of UX, and I'm talking about even, you know, very high-level execs, PMs whom I've spoken, you know, during my consultancy and working in companies, there's this myth that UX is all about uh, the user interface, you know, and, and as is. you might have, people say, yeah, UX is just UI, you know. So, currently we are told the interface, the controls that you look look up could be buttons, modals, elements, that's what is that's where a UX designer's job is concerned. But that's not okay. UX. See, okay. I think working on UX is not a UX designer's job. It's everybody's job because we're talking about the wholesome experience. So, you know, everybody okay. is the product is actually adding a layer of experience. So for okay. me, good uh, Melissa, contrary to what, you know, most people feel doesn't happen just inside the game. It's all yeah. about, it's way before the product is in player's hand you know let's say you have a new game but you're about to launch you know how do you create anticipation for it how do you excite players about that something is coming you know which they might be really interested so so use user experience for a game or any product starts way before it is even launched and how mm -hmm. you are you know, marketing it and creating anticipation for the product and then of course once you know the players or the user has that product it's about how intuitive it is easy to use how how much you know effort player needs to put in to understand and start enjoying the game in our case, Definitely. you know. It's not that we don't need a four-page manual to make them understand what the game is about. So how intuitive it is. But then it's also about what happens when the player is not playing the game or using the product. How do they recall it? What kind of emotions <laughs> they create with it? What is the memory they are left with? You know, do they say it with, you know, uh, enjoyment, satisfaction, fulfillment, or is it something they recall as Oh, I don't know what I did. I'm very confused about it. It's a very hard product for you. So, so what I'm trying to say is user experience exists not just while player is using the product, but also they call it afterwards. You know, mm -hmm. that, that describe uh, good UX, you know. Like it. Um, so that this is what you do, right, with your um, consultancy firm. So take us through kind of like the, the starting point or starting process with a with a customer. What's the sort of like first question you ask or how do you get started um, in understanding what needs to be done and, and how, how you approach a project? Yeah, so there, Melissa, I think often what happens is when clients come to me, you know, they are coming with an objective in mind. You know, for example, there are always these lead movement. Uh, uh, sorry, where we were talking about, okay, what do you want to achieve? So often clients talk about what they want to achieve and what I push them back on is, okay, I know what you want to do, but why? You know, I think why mm -hmm. is important because it's very common in software development. Everybody's guilty of it. Probably I've done it many times, you know. Mm -hmm. We all solution, but we never ask ourselves, is this the right problem to solve? You know, mm -hmm. so that question I always start with. Okay, guys, you want to do it, but is this the right problem to solve? And yeah, no. I think if we find the right problem to solve, then obviously the kind of, you know, um, outcome we come up with will be more impactful. So that that's the first place to start. And then as we go deeper into conversation, even in UX, we start with what is called a discovery phase. So discovery phase is understanding about, okay, these are your objectives. What is causing it? You know, I look at the data, like what kind of uh, quant data they have from analytics. Uh, and then I try to 
compare it with qualitative data. So quantitative data and qualitative data. Qualitative side, I'm looking at, you know, uh, auditing the product in game and looking at, okay, what issues I am seeing from a subject matter expert perspective. What mm -hmm. am I finding? Player research or reviews. And then what the data is saying. So once I combine these three different data sets, a more coherent picture emerges. And then, you know, I get deeper in design side. Mm -hmm. Um. It, it, what you've just said sort of like um, struck me. Um, this, you know, this idea of balancing kind of what this, what the studio wants to achieve, right? Yeah. Um, with what might be the right problem to solve. Um, how do you sort of strike the right balance between sort of because good UX is is in the end about the user, right? Representing the needs of the user, um, yeah. and and the, and and answering the needs or the objectives of the studio. Like, how do you, what are the challenges there and how do you mitigate them? Yeah, and for this, I just want to, you know, go a little bit back into where UX originated. So everybody knows, you know, UX, the first company to actually formally integrate it was, you know, Apple's. It came with Don uh -huh. Norman. You know, you know, he's the father of UX. So it's interesting that user experience as a field originated, you know, outside games, right? So, uh, I mean, it's interesting. It's a fact, actually. But what's interesting is it it kind of shifts a little when it comes into games. And I'll touch on that. So what I'm saying is, yeah, in software product, it originated. Uh, it's all about the end user. But game development is slightly different. So my definition in game development is it's about balancing the intentions of the developer with the needs of the user. Now, why am I stressing that? Because imagine uh, if Apple wants to create a product, let's say a phone. They're, they're solving a very real problem with that. Oh, we want to create a smartphone because, you know, people have to use desktop for checking emails and phones for making calls. Why don't we combine it? And for listening to music, they have to use, you know, a, a Walkman. They said, yeah, let's put it all together, right? So they solved a real problem. When we're talking about games, games border more on entertainment side of it, right? Mm -hmm. they, they are products which give a lot of joy, but they are they are more on the they're ledger not, side. They're not functional. Yeah, rather than necessity, you know, you can probably survive without playing a game. Most people can't <laughs> survive without, let's say, checking your email, you know, especially if your business mm -hmm. depends. So, so what I'm saying is when we talk about the definition of user experience, games UX, uh, it's slightly different from product UX. So we are saying every, and, and that's where I think we can borrow a lot from cinema, right? Development mm -hmm. um, is very similar to it. You know, when you're building a big budget movie, the producers, the directors, the story writers, they have a vision. This is what we want to build and we want to build something, you know, our audience can enjoy. So that's where with game development also the vision believes, the founders believe, yeah, we want to create this game because we think it will, you know, it will be the best shooter out there and will appeal to the audience. So a UX designer's job in games industry is how do you balance that intent, that vision of the, you know, developers with the needs and wants of the players. So I think... Uh, that's why I think uh, it is very important when we think of games, uh, UX in games, I always use the term human-centered design rather than user-centered mm -hmm. design. Okay. That is made. In UX, it's all about, you know, the needs, satisfying the needs and wants of end users. But in human-centered design, what happens, we say, no, we have more stakeholders. In UX, the key stakeholder is our players, our users. In human-centered design, we say, everybody who touches the product, their experience matters. And just as players are a key stakeholder group, so are our developers. You know, that's that's where we position ourselves to balance. Interesting. 
So in a way, your sort of approach to UX is um, kind of unbundling UX from just the user, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's a very good way to put it. Or I would say expand the umbrella. Because uh, mm -hmm. I'm the voice of the user, but I'm also, as I want to show the same empathy to my development, because their goals mm -hmm. are, you know, and strike that. How... Um, what's an example of those two things coming into conflict and then how do you make a call? So, we are always in conflict. Not always. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's a good question actually. And the reason to move from, you know, user-centered design to human-centered design. And again, uh, when I'm saying that it's not something specific to games, even outside games, more and more companies are using, uh, are moving from user-centered design to human-centered design. Because of the exact same reason. Often what happens is because a UX designer traditionally is voice of the user and the business mm -hmm. needs different, right? They might say, oh, we want to boost uh, revenue KPI by, you know, this much retention so we can mm -hmm. make more of it. And the UX person might say, yeah, should we focus on retention? Maybe we should, fo maybe we should focus more on retention rather than revenue, you know? So mm -hmm. there are these goals which are conflicting and in my career i've seen it in every company we'll always be in this position there's also a lot of cost trading which happens so so this was one example you know um business owners or pms may be asking for more revenue related features you know when, when mm -hmm. you're, while a user researcher or ux person based on what they have interviews they've done data they are seeing from you know players they're saying no players are complaining about this uh basic uh broken experience in our existing, let's say, or loop. We should fix that. And the PM is like, you know, no, we only have limited bandwidth. Either we can spend mm -hmm. it on, you know, making more revenue or fixing what's, you know, improving the experience. Mm -hmm. Battles always happen. And I think the way to go about it is, Melissa, in my mind is once you are going human-centered design, you have to educate your stakeholders. You know, you mm -hmm. don't expect PM or exec to understand what UX is about initially because it's a very new field, right? So I I put a lot of emphasis on stakeholder education and my objective is to take everybody to player first mentality. But at the same time, even to the UX teams that I've handled, I always tell them, guys, good UX also has to have a component of sustainability. There's no point yeah. building a which is awesome to use, free for uh, you know everybody to uh, consume. But after two months, we'll have to pull the blood because it mm -hmm. cannot take. So I think that sustainability piece, uh, it's balancing, the, balancing user needs, sustainability, business needs and making sure, you know, we are not over farming the user or, you know, uh, over imposing revenue goals over, you know, player joy mm -hmm. and satisfaction. Mm -hmm. It's a delicate balance. Yeah. Uh, how do you, you talked about uh, other industries outside of gaming. How do those industries sort of tackle this? Um, is it more user-centric, human-centric? What are some examples of companies that are doing it really, really well or striking that balance really, really well? Yeah, I think IBM as a company is more, you know, uh, human-centered design from uh, what I've seen. And another facet of uh, human-centered design is so... Human-centered design includes UX, includes user research, but also includes what is called design. So design thinking, powerful methodology, or developed by, uh, I think, Oxford, if I'm not wrong, some of the very famous universities. It's a tool for innovation, you know. Okay. So what I've seen is many companies like Airbnb, IBM, company I was working for, you know, a couple of years back, Eaton, they were on adopting this human-centered approach because it brought them to design thinking. And that's where they mm -hmm. could innovate 
know, the what happened was the role of UX team broadened. It's not just about finding what users want and design, you know, experience for them, but also take a part in innovation. What that does is it gives us a footing in business plan because if we can help companies innovate, we get open more product line, broader revenues. So your role has, you know, now slightly expanded. Um, and I think, yeah, in human-centered design companies, there is less kind of a tension. There's still the same struggles, obviously, you know. But that... I think bridge the gap through stakeholder education with, uh, yeah, why do we want to, you know, build good user experiences? What is the return of investment of UX? Because one of the hardest things, you can ask any UX director, you know, in any company, and they'll say the hardest thing for us is to prove the return on investment on UX. You know, you can't say we, we improve the experience and what happens. It's very hard. But I think in human-centered design, people understand that. And at the same time, UX designers also don't feel this pain that, you know, if they are working on business goals, they are, you know, betraying the user goals because they understand as a designer, it's they are responsible also for meeting, you know, some of the business goals. How do you, let's talk about sort of um, putting all of that wonderful um, kind of like approach or philosophy into practice. So how do you sort of... Um, and, and you must come up against this a lot. How do you create that um, or cultivate human-centered design approach within a company? Yeah. So I mean, probably stakeholder engagement is one of them. Not uh, engagement, education. You already said that. But sort of like, how do you how do you go about doing that? Yeah, I think the first. Uh, so I've been I've become a proponent of uh, human-centered design. You know, very. Like in last few years only, because you know this is also something the field is developing. Before that, I was very user-centered design, and in my own career history, like I said, I had very major conflicts. You know, at yeah. high level, I could see how business goals were not, you know, aligned with what use what the what what's the best experience we could have delivered. But as I worked in different companies within games, outside games, uh, it often came up. What frustrated me most was, you know, there are PMs coming in, execs coming in, and they think that they're talking about UX, but they don't know enough about UX. And one day mm -hmm. I just come my own boss. Yeah, they just don't understand UX. And he took a minute and he said, you know, oh, calm down. Let's say if they don't understand UX, who do you, whose problem do you think it is? You can't blame then them, he... you know. They've been doing what they've been doing for the last 20 years. There's no cavalry coming from outside. So, you know, that was my one of those wake up moments. Then I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, when I join a company, first thing I try to do is uh, talk to, you know, uh, my business stakeholders, understand what their pain points are, what they think about UX, what their perspective is, because you have to gauge um, what is the level of understanding of UX within the company, you know. So that gives a good idea. So there's a lot of stakeholder interviews, you know, understanding the gap in the pipeline and all those things. So one of the pillars I build is stakeholder education, like I said earlier. This is done through, you know, show and tells, talking about examples from other companies, then at the same time, I also try to create what I call a full stack UX designer. So it again depends on the maturity level of a company. So let's say in gaming, most companies you go, the maturity is either low, they've never had UX before, or mid, they mm -hmm. have had form of UX, but they're not, you know, perfectly uh, compliant, right? Mm -hmm. So what I try to do is create a full stack UX designer. I start with that base where I say, hey, your job is to, of course, do, you know, uh, wireframing and prototyping, but also you should be able to do some kind of user research. You should be able to do workshops, you know, and through workshops, we are engaging our business stakeholders. We are actually working with them to see what problems they are facing. 
and how can we help them innovate using design thinking methodologies. So now what I try to do is expand a UX designer's role from just doing wireframing prototyping to a bit of user research so that, you know, uh, we are more independent workshops to engage our business stakeholders and see how we can help them innovate or, you know, meet some of the business goals. So yeah, there are multiple things, you know, which you have to do. And in parallel, I also try to build much more stronger user research practices, either internally or through outsourcing, because I think you can't Hello. design, you know, doing good research. Um, let's say you are a, uh, smaller game company, um, or, or, a, you know, indie developer on their own. How do you go about sort of, um, designing, doing good UX, if you can't use a consultant and you don't have a team and you don't have a dedicated designer, what are some of the things to sort of like bear in mind or, or, or best practices? Yeah, that's a good question, Melissa. And I it is often the case with indie developers, either there's no budget or they have, don't have internal resources. I think then they should definitely bench what are the best products in the market. You know, let's say if you're operating in a, let's say board game genre, you know, go out there and see what are the best board games out there. Definitely play them because you want to experience them. And I'm not saying just sort by, oh, top grossing. <laughs> that, mm -hmm. that necessarily. See, like, you know, by reviews, you know, many ways you can sort and see, okay, what are the games getting the best reviews? You know, when you yes. play products, you will definitely see, okay, there, there are some which, probably hold them to higher standards than the others. And then the simplest way, um, you should follow what are called usability heuristics. You know, these are principles. Even indie developers, they are either programmers, developers or CEOs. You know, I'm sure they are pretty smart people. They can still go ahead and there's a lot of literature about what we call uh, heuristics. You know, that is basically mental models or shortcuts of how people make decisions. So and the holy grail of UX is heuristics. When we look at products, that's how we try to you know, analyze them and build best practices using, okay, just very simple example is, if an error occurred in your game, for some reason, you know, the game throws, mm -hmm. how are you come to play it? Many games out there might say, and I've seen it, you might have seen it also, sometimes whatever error is there in the port base, error 00, zero occurred, timed out. Or, so, so the player reads error 00, zero whatever, 001, zero zero uh, timed out. So what happens is, this is a bad experience because you're creating ambiguity. Player is looking at the game is not working. The message you are giving them is technical. They can't take any call to action. That's a very first example of something happened in your game which broke it. But the experienced player is you didn't handle it well. You broke a heuristic of prevention. Whereas if you have started usability heuristics, one of them is error prevention, which always says always player systems players should always be made aware of what state the product is in, the game is in, and you should give them appropriate feedback and a way out. So. A neater message would be um, either servers are really busy or uh, oops, we had a uh, timeout, the game crashed. Please restart the app again. Or uh, mm -hmm. if the this reach help. You know, so here you have told the player in a very uh, player-friendly, user-friendly term, you know, which they can understand. Mm -hmm. what, what You have told them what action you should take and you have told them if the action persists, contact. Help. So this is, uh, what I'm saying is, you know, by studying these kind of usability principles, heuristics, you can still add a lot of value to your game. Mm -hmm. um, you talked earlier about how one of the biggest challenges that um, UX directors have is kind of proving ROI. Um, how do you sort of like, what's the result you're looking for when you're using sort of human-centered design and, and how do you measure success? Because it, it feels like it's a very sort of 
data centric practice in the sense that you can you're going to be researching your users you're going to be also looking at sort of like the impact the changes that you make have on things like engagement or retention on the other hand you're saying it's hard to kind of prove ROI so how how does that sort of how do those two things intersect yeah i think what happens is like you know many time ux improvements can be can be vague because there are two ways in my experience ux you know impact or UX design or research impacts product. One is, let's say you have UX designer embedded into your team and you're working on, let's say, this new clan feature. Of course, it will have its product KPIs. You know, this is a clan we want to increase peer-to-peer uh, -peer collaboration, which might result in more event engagement, which might result in more hard currency sync, which might lead to, you know. So they have their KPIs. So I think there it is easy to track because a UX or a UX UI designer is directly adding value to the product. And... If the overall product KPIs are met, you can say UX contributed to it, right? But then what happens is, this is true of probably the biggest games out there and even indie games. I'm saying like games in big companies, they always have UX debt. We talk about technical debt, right? For example, when first a game is built, um, it's built with code which is messy. And once, you know, mm -hmm. you gain traction, developers just are in a rush to capitalize on that traction and uh, keep adding features. Years down the line, it's more to as today we have game as service. They say, oh, we can't add this new feature because this game is six years old. Its code base has a lot of technical debt. We have to clean it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we can add a new feature and make more revenue or get more players. Or we can spend this one, two months just making these improvements, but we don't know. Uh, it will not bring in any additional revenue, right? So I think yes. UX debt is the same bucket. What happens many times, many of the games today are almost 10, 12 years old. And as you can imagine, there were no dedicated UX people looking on it. Many times they were designing the product. So a lot of these old reigning games and even new indie games where people don't have UX debt, they design it on the go. And there are these nifty things in the experience which need fixing, big things, small things. So when I say it's very hard to prove the ROI, it is spe specifically for these cases where we yeah. audit the say, hey, because for new features, it is easy. You know, you're automatically contributing like every other team. And if the KPIs are met, you can say, yeah, UX contributed. to it. But when you say, hey, I want to rehaul the UX of the game. I want to reduce the UX debt. Um, so I, I was, and it's important for the long-term health, right, Melissa? Because imagine if the debt continues, you have these new features, which have very cool, uber, contemporary UX, and then you play another part of the game and it sucks because it doesn't even have the basics in there. So one way is I also, we we develop what are called, there are different ways to use it. There are game user research scores. Like I was experimenting with something called guest score in my last company, where we took surveys with our engaged player base, 2,000, 3,000 uh, players, engaged players, and asked their feedback on different uh, features of the game. And we mm -hmm. had a score. And then let's say we, from that we saw, okay, which areas people liked, what were their complaints. And if we put in another month or three sprints improving those things, we again take that guest score and see. And this will also come up in player, you know, engagement surveys, uh, SAT right. score, and all those things. That's how the way to measure. But it's hard. Um, you've talked a little bit about sort of like the evolution, I guess, of kind of from UX to, to human-centered design uh, or user-centric design to, to human-centered design. How, um, what's your kind of prediction for how... Um, design thinking, human centered, however, whatever you want to call it, how is how do you think that's going to evolve um, within the game industry over the next few years? Yeah, 
I think that's a good question. Uh, one thing is, as you may always know, you know, what was the trickle down effect? I, I think what happens is we get inspired a lot from what's happening in, you know, enterprise software development. Right? Here's an example. Ten years ago, we never had PMs in the game. We only had producers. Right? So they kind of game designers did a lot of uh, PM work. So whatever trends or additions, evolutions we see in enterprise software, we see them after a lag time trickle down into games. So you know. They started the um, the focus on having PMs came like five six years back when they say oh yeah software industries have PMs we should have those roles same happened with UX so for me one of the way for one of the ways for evolution will will be of course looking at what's happening in enterprise software uh, what kind of roles are emerging uh, I could see a greater role of AI in you know both UX yeah, and UI operating in that space uh, I do think that would be at a collaborator stage I don't think they will replace Replaced. you know tools which will be leveraged by you know UX designers in games especially for A-B testing because a lot of game design development is through A-B test based and AI can definitely help they can also help you know uh, better utilize user research UX product learnings and you know better analyze and help us design better another thing I think is what's gonna happen is the age of mass design you know mass development Developing it. This is again my own opinion. People might agree with yeah, this. What I've seen is like game development always started out very broad. Design a experience yeah. which uh, kind of you know appeals to the broadest funnel possible, which is still yeah, true. Yeah. If you new games, new experience, but for older games yeah. who have already reached their maturity, you know, I think it will be about personalization. It's no longer yeah. about uh, uh, today. I think. We do this at segment level. You know, I actually wrote something on this about six years back when I said, "No, we are going to go towards segments," and that happened actually. So mm-hmm. people are identifying what are the groups and they're designing for them. But I think just how Netflix works today, it's yeah, it's yeah. the highest level of optimization. You know, it serves the niches. It knows what you like, and it turns up features, offers everything around. So I think in these longer lasting games, that's what's going to happen. The experience is going to move from Mass design or segment design to personalization. That, that's mm-hmm. where I see. Nice. Um, let's could do a whole episode on Netflix and games. We're not going to do that right now. <laughs> um, so, uh, oh, thank you very, very much. This was super interesting. Um, I feel like we could probably even do a whole other episode on on kind of like just running through interesting examples of kind of like good good human centered design. Um, so. Um, potentially another one on the books for that. But thank you very much for being on the show today. And thank you, as always, to everyone else for listening. Thanks for inviting me, Melissa.